Chapter Three, Part Three of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Queen Victoria, by Giles Lytton Strachey, Chapter Three, Part Three. Seven. The Queen had for long been haunted by a terror that the day might come when she would be obliged to part with her minister. Ever since the passage of the Reform Bill, the power of the Whig government had steadily declined. The general election of 1837 had left them with a very small majority in the House of Commons. Since then they had been in constant difficulties, abroad, at home, in Ireland. The radical group had grown hostile. It became highly doubtful how much longer they could survive. The Queen watched the development of events in great anxiety. She was a Whig by birth, by upbringing, by every association, public and private. And, even if those ties had never existed, the mere fact that Lord M. was the head of the Whigs would have amply sufficed to determine her politics. The fall of the Whigs would mean a sad upset for Lord M. But it would have a still more terrible consequence. Lord M., would have to leave her, and the daily, the hourly presence of Lord M. had become an integral part of her life. Six months after her accession she had noted in her diary, I shall be very sorry to lose him even for one night, and this feeling of personal dependence on her minister steadily increased. In these circumstances it was natural that she should have become a Whig partisan. Of the wider significance of political questions she knew nothing. All she saw was that her friends were in office and about her, and that it would be dreadful if they ceased to be so. I cannot say, she wrote when a critical division was impending, though I feel confident of our success, how low, how sad I feel, when I think of the possibility of this excellent and truly kind man not remaining my minister. Yet I trust fervently that he who has so wonderfully protected me through such manifold difficulties will not now desert me. I should have liked to have expressed to Lord M. my anxiety, but the tears were nearer than words throughout the time I saw him, and I felt I should have choked had I attempted to say anything. Lord Melbourne realized clearly enough how undesirable was such a state of mind in a constitutional sovereign who might be called upon at any moment to receive as her ministers the leaders of the opposite party. He did what he could to cool her ardor, but in vain. With considerable lack of foresight, too, he had himself helped to bring about this unfortunate condition of affairs. From the moment of her accession, he had surrounded the Queen with ladies of his own party. The mistress of the robes and all the ladies of the bedchamber were Whigs. In the ordinary course, the Queen never saw a Tory. Eventually, she took pains never to see one in any circumstances. She disliked the whole tribe, and she did not conceal the fact. She particularly disliked Sir Robert Peel, who would almost certainly be the next Prime Minister. His manners were detestable and he wanted to turn out Lord M. His supporters, without exception, were equally bad, and as for Sir James Graham, she could not bear the sight of him. 
he was exactly like Sir John Conroy. The affair of Lady Flora intensified these party rumours still further. The Hastings were Tories, and Lord Melbourne and the court were attacked by the Tory press in unmeasured language. The Queen's sectarian zeal proportionately increased. But the dreaded hour was now fast approaching. Early in May, the ministers were visibly tottering. On a vital point of policy, they could only secure a majority of five in the House of Commons. They determined to resign. When Victoria heard the news, she burst into tears. Was it possible, then, that all was over? Was she indeed about to see Lord M. for the last time? Lord M. came, and it is a curious fact that, even in this crowning moment of misery and agitation, the precise girl noted to the minute the exact time of the arrival and the departure of her beloved minister. The conversation was touching and prolonged, but it could only end in one way. The Queen must send for the Duke of Wellington. When next morning the Duke came, he advised Her Majesty to send for Sir Robert Peel, she was in a state of dreadful grief, but she swallowed down her tears and braced herself with royal resolution for the odious, odious interview. Peel was by nature reserved, proud, and shy. His manners were not perfect, and he knew it. He was easily embarrassed, and at such moments he grew even more stiff and formal than before while his feet mechanically performed upon the carpet a dancing-master's measure. Anxious as he now was to win the Queen's good graces, his very anxiety to do so made the attainment of his object the more difficult. He entirely failed to make any headway whatever with the haughty, hostile girl before him. She coldly noted that he appeared to be unhappy, and put out, and while he stood in painful fixity, with an occasional uneasy pointing of the toe, her heart sank within her at the sight of that manner. Oh, how different, how dreadfully different to the frank, open, natural, and most kind, warm manner of Lord Melbourne. Nevertheless, the audience passed without disaster. Only at one point had there been some slight hint of a disagreement. Peel had decided that a change would be necessary in the composition of the royal household. The Queen must no longer be entirely surrounded by the wives and sisters of his opponents. Some, at any rate, of the ladies of the bedchamber should be friendly to his government. When this matter was touched upon, the Queen had intimated that she wished her household to remain unchanged, to which Sir Robert had replied that the question could be settled later and shortly afterwards withdrew to arrange the details of his cabinet. While he was present, Victoria had remained, as she herself said, very much collected, civil and high, and betrayed no agitation. But as soon as she was alone, she completely broke down. Then she pulled herself together to write to Lord Melbourne an account of all that had happened, and of her own wretchedness. She feels, she said, Lord Melbourne will understand it amongst enemies to those she most relied on and most esteemed. But what is worst of all is the being deprived of seeing Lord Melbourne as she used to do. Lord Melbourne replied with a very wise letter. He attempted to calm the Queen and induce her to accept the new position gracefully. 
and he had nothing but good words for the Tory leaders. As for the question of the ladies of the household, the Queen, he said, should strongly urge what she desired, as it was a matter which concerned her personally. But, he added, if Sir Robert is unable to concede it, it will not do to refuse and to put off the negotiation upon it. On this point there can be little doubt that Lord Melbourne was right. The question was a complicated and subtle one, and it had never arisen before. But subsequent constitutional practice has determined that a Queen Regnant must accede to the wishes of her Prime Minister as to the personnel of the female part of her household. Lord Melbourne's wisdom, however, was wasted. The Queen would not be soothed, and still less would she take advice. It was outrageous of the Tories to want to deprive her of her ladies, and that night she made up her mind that, whatever Sir Robert might say, she would refuse to consent to the removal of a single one of them. Accordingly, when, next morning, Peel appeared again, she was ready for action. He began by detailing the cabinet appointments, and then he added, Now, ma'am, about the ladies when the Queen sharply interrupted him. "'I cannot give up any of my ladies,' she said. "'What, ma'am?' said Sir Robert. "'Does Your Majesty mean to retain them all?' "'All,' said the Queen. Sir Robert's face worked strangely. He could not conceal his agitation. "'The mistress of the robes and the ladies of the bedchamber?' he brought out at last. "'All,' replied once more Her Majesty." It was in vain that Peel pleaded and argued, in vain that he spoke, growing every moment more pompous and uneasy, of the Constitution and Queen's Regnant and the public interest, in vain that he danced his pathetic minuet. She was adamant. But he, too, through all his embarrassment, showed no sign of yielding, and when at last he left her, nothing had been decided. The whole formation of the government was hanging in the wind. A frenzy of excitement now seized upon Victoria. Sir Robert, she believed in her fury, had tried to outwit her, to take her friends from her, to impose his will upon her own. But that was not all. She had suddenly perceived, while the poor man was moving so uneasily before her, the one thing that she was desperately longing for, a loophole of escape. She seized a pen and dashed off a note to Lord Melbourne. Sir Robert has behaved very ill, she wrote. He insisted on my giving up my ladies, to which I replied that I never would consent, and I never saw a man so frightened. I was calm, but very decided, and I think you would have been pleased to see my composure and great firmness. The Queen of England will not submit to such trickery. Keep yourself in readiness, for you may soon be wanted. Hardly had she finished when the Duke of Wellington was announced. "'Well, ma'am,' he said as he entered, "'I am very sorry to find there is a difficulty.' "'Oh,' she instantly replied, "'he began it, not me.' She felt that only one thing now was needed. She must be firm. And firm she was. The venerable conqueror of Napoleon was outfaced by the relentless equanimity of a girl in her teens he could not move the Queen one inch. At last she even ventured to rally him. "'Is Sir Robert so weak?' she asked. 
that even the ladies must be of his opinion? On which the Duke made a brief and humble expostulation, bowed low, and departed. Had she won? Time would show, and in the meantime she scribbled down another letter. Lord Melbourne must not think the Queen rash in her conduct. The Queen felt this was an attempt to see whether she could be led and managed like a child. Note. The exclamation, They wish to treat me like a girl, but I will show them that I am Queen of England, often quoted as the Queen's, is apocryphal. It is merely part of Greville's summary of the two letters to Melbourne. It may be noted that the phrase, The Queen of England will not submit to such trickery, is omitted in girlhood, and in general there are numerous verbal discrepancies between the versions of the journal and the letters in the two books. End of note. The Tories were not only wicked, but ridiculous. Peel, having, as she understood, expressed a wish to remove only those members of the household who were in Parliament, now objected to her ladies. I should like to know, she exclaimed in triumphant scorn, if they mean to give the ladies seats in Parliament. The end of the crisis was now fast approaching. Sir Robert returned and told her that if she insisted upon retaining all her ladies, he could not form a government. She replied that she would send him her final decision in writing. Next morning the late Whig cabinet met. Lord Melbourne read to them the Queen's letters, and the group of elderly politicians were overcome by an extraordinary wave of enthusiasm. They knew very well that, to say the least, it was highly doubtful whether the Queen had acted in strict accordance with the Constitution, that in doing what she had done she had brushed aside Lord Melbourne's advice, that in reality there was no public reason whatever why they should go back upon their decision to resign but such considerations vanished before the passionate urgency of Victoria. The intensity of her determination swept them headlong down the stream of her desire. They unanimously felt that it was impossible to abandon such a queen and such a woman. Forgetting that they were no longer Her Majesty's ministers, they took the unprecedented course of advising the queen by letter to put an end to her negotiation with Sir Robert Peel. She did so. All was over. She had triumphed. That evening there was a ball at the palace. Everyone was present. Peel and the Duke of Wellington came by, looking very much put out. She was perfectly happy. Lord M. was Prime Minister once more, and he was by her side. 8. Happiness had returned with Lord M., but it was happiness in the midst of agitation. The domestic imbroglio continued unabated until at last the Duke, rejected as a minister, was called in once again in his old capacity as moral physician to the family. Something was accomplished when, at last, he induced Sir John Conroy to resign his place about the Duchess of Kent and leave the palace forever something more when he persuaded the queen to write an affectionate letter to her mother the way seemed open for a reconciliation but the duchess was stormy still she didn't believe that victoria had written that letter it was not in her handwriting and she sent for the duke to tell him so the duke assuring her that the letter was genuine begged her to forget the past but that was not so easy 
"'What am I to do if Lord Melbourne comes up to me?' "'Do, ma'am. Why receive him with civility?' "'Well, she would make an effort. "'But what am I to do if Victoria asks me to shake hands with Leitzen?' "'Do, ma'am. Why take her in your arms and kiss her?' "'What?' The Duchess bristled in every feather, and then she burst into a hearty laugh. "'No, ma'am, no,' said the Duke, laughing, too. "'I don't mean you are to take Leitzen in your arms and kiss her, but the Queen!' The Duke might perhaps have succeeded, had not all attempts at conciliation been rendered hopeless by a tragical event. Lady Flora, it was discovered, had been suffering from a terrible internal malady, which now grew rapidly worse. There could be little doubt that she was dying. The Queen's unpopularity reached an extraordinary height. More than once she was publicly insulted. "'Mrs. Melbourne!' was shouted at her when she appeared at her balcony, and at Ascot she was hissed by the Duchess of Montrose and Lady Sarah in gesture as she passed. Lady Flora died. The whole scandal burst out again with redoubled vehemence, while in the palace the two parties were henceforth divided by an impassable, a Stygian gulf. Nevertheless, Lord M. was back, and every trouble faded under the enchantment of his presence and his conversation. He, on his side, had gone through much, and his distresses were intensified by a consciousness of his own shortcomings. He realized clearly enough that, if he had intervened at the right moment, the Hastings scandal might have been averted, and in the bedchamber crisis he knew that he had allowed his judgment to be overruled and his conduct to be swayed by private feelings and the impetuosity of Victoria. But he was not one to suffer too acutely from the pangs of conscience. In spite of the dullness and the formality of the court, his relationship with the Queen had come to be the dominating interest in his life. To have been deprived of it would have been heart-rending. That dread eventuality had been, somehow, avoided. He was installed once more in a kind of triumph. Let him enjoy the fleeting hours to the full. And so, cherished by the favour of a sovereign and warmed by the adoration of a girl, the autumn rose in those autumn months of 1839 came to a wondrous blooming. The petals expanded beautifully for the last time. For the last time in this unlooked-for, this incongruous, this almost incredible intercourse, the old epicure tasted the exquisiteness of romance. To watch, to teach, to restrain, to encourage the royal young creature beside him, that was much. To feel with such a constant intimacy the impact of her quick affection, her radiant vitality, that was more. Most of all, perhaps, was it good to linger vaguely in humorous contemplation, in idle apostrophe, to talk disconnectedly, to make a little joke about an apple or a furbelow, to dream. The springs of his sensibility hidden deep within him were overflowing. Often, as he bent over her hand and kissed it, he found himself in tears. Upon Victoria, with all her impermeability, it was inevitable that such a companionship should have produced, eventually, an effect. She was no longer the simple schoolgirl of two years since. The change was visible even in her public demeanour. Her expression, once ingenuous and serene, 
now appeared to a shrewd observer to be bold and discontented. She had learnt something of the pleasures of power and the pains of it, but that was not all. Lord Melbourne, with his gentle instruction, had sought to lead her into the paths of wisdom and moderation, but the whole unconscious movement of his character had swayed her in a very different direction. The hard, clear pebble, subjected for so long and so constantly to that encircling and insidious fluidity, had suffered a curious corrosion. It seemed to be actually growing a little soft and a little clouded. Humanity and fallibility are infectious things. Was it possible that Leitzen's prim pupil had caught them? That she was beginning to listen to siren voices? That the secret impulses of self-expression, of self-indulgence even, were mastering her life? For a moment the child of a new age looked back and wavered towards the eighteenth century. It was the most critical moment of her career. Had those influences lasted, the development of her character, the history of her life, would have been completely changed. And why should they not last? She, for one, was very anxious that they should. Let them last forever. She was surrounded by Whigs. She was free to do whatever she wanted. She had Lord M. She could not believe that she could ever be happier. Any change would be for the worse. And the worst change of all? No, she would not hear of it. It would be quite intolerable. It would upset everything, if she were to marry. And yet everyone seemed to want her to. The general public, the ministers, her Saxe-Coburg relations. It was always the same story. Of course, she knew very well that there were excellent reasons for it. For one thing, if she remained childless and were to die... Her uncle Cumberland, who is now the King of Hanover, would succeed to the throne of England. That, no doubt, would be a most unpleasant event, and she entirely sympathized with everybody who wished to avoid it. But there was no hurry. Naturally, she would marry in the end, but not just yet, not for three or four years. What was tiresome was that her uncle Leopold had apparently determined not only that she ought to marry, but that her cousin Albert ought to be her husband. That was very like her uncle Leopold, who wanted to have a finger in every pie, and it was true that long ago, in far-off days, before the accession even, she had written to him in a way which might well have encouraged him in such a notion. She had told him then that Albert possessed every quality that could be desired to render her perfectly happy, and had begged her dearest uncle, to take care of the health of one now so dear to me, and take him under your special protection, adding, I hope and trust all will go on prosperously and well on this subject of so much importance to me. But that had been years ago when she was a mere child. Perhaps, indeed, to judge from the language, the letter had been dictated by Leitzen. At any rate, her feelings and all the circumstances had now entirely changed. Albert hardly interested her at all. In later life, the Queen declared that she had never for a moment dreamt of marrying anyone but her cousin. Her letters and diaries tell a very different story. On August 26, 1837, she wrote in her journal, Today is my dearest cousin Albert's eighteenth birthday, and I pray heaven to pour its choicest blessings on his beloved head. 
In the subsequent years, however, the date passes unnoticed. It had been arranged that Stockmar should accompany the prince to Italy, and the faithful baron left her side for that purpose. He wrote to her more than once with sympathetic descriptions of his young companion, but her mind was by this time made up. She liked and admired Albert very much, but she did not want to marry him. At present, she told Lord Melbourne in April 1839, my feeling is quite against ever marrying. When her cousin's Italian tour came to an end, she began to grow nervous. She knew that, according to a long-standing engagement, his next journey would be to England. He would probably arrive in the autumn, and by July her uneasiness was intense. She determined to write to her uncle in order to make her position clear. It must be understood, she said, that there is no, no engagement between us. If she should like Albert, she could make no final promise this year, for at the very earliest any such event could not take place till two or three years hence. She had, she said, a great repugnance to change her present position, and if she should not like him, she was very anxious that it should be understood that she would not be guilty of any breach of promise, for she never gave any. To Lord Melbourne she was more explicit. She told him that she had no great wish to see Albert, as the whole subject was an odious one. She hated to have to decide about it, and she repeated once again that seeing Albert would be a disagreeable thing. But there was no escaping the horrid business. The visit must be made, and she must see him. The summer slipped by and was over. It was the autumn already. On the evening of October 10th, Albert, accompanied by his brother Ernest, arrived at Windsor. Albert arrived, and the whole structure of her existence crumbled into nothingness like a house of cards. He was beautiful, she gasped, she knew no more. Then in a flash a thousand mysteries were revealed to her. The past, the present, rushed upon her with a new significance. The delusions of years were abolished, and an extraordinary and irresistible certitude leapt into being in the light of those blue eyes, the smile of that lovely mouth. The succeeding hours passed in a rapture. She was able to observe a few more details. The exquisite nose, the delicate mustachios and slight but very slight whiskers, the beautiful figure broad in the shoulders and a fine waist, she rode with him, danced with him, talked with him, and it was all perfection. She had no shadow of a doubt. He had come on a Thursday evening, and on the following Sunday morning she told Lord Melbourne that she had a good deal changed her opinion as to marrying. Next morning she told him that she had made up her mind to marry Albert. The morning after that she sent for her cousin. She received him alone, and... After a few minutes I said to him that I thought he must be aware why I wished them to come here, and that it would make me too happy if he would consent to what I wished, to marry me. Then we embraced each other, and he was so kind, so affectionate. She said that she was quite unworthy of him, while he murmured that he would be very happy das Leben mit dir zu, zu bringen. They parted, and she felt 
the happiest of human beings. When Lord M. came in, they parted, and she felt the happiest of human beings when Lord M. came in. At first she beat about the bush, and talked of the weather, and indifferent subjects. Somehow or other she felt a little nervous with her old friend. At last, summoning up her courage, she said, I have got well through this with Albert. Oh, you have, said Lord M. End of chapter 3, part 3